Today's episode is brought to you by Pan Macmillan, South Africa. Pan Macmillan is part of the Macmillan Group, a big five publisher. Gail, I already know which new release I am most excited about this month. But why don't you tell me yours? Fiona, you're not going to believe it, but I am really excited to read Magic, the story of Desiree Ellis. The local soccer star. (laughs) Yes, you know how obsessed I am with powerful women. She's been a Banyana Banyana player, captain and head coach. And her story is truly inspiring. It's told to journalist Luke Alfred, who captures her journey from Salt River to the 2023 World Cup. And I believe it is written beautifully. Sounds like it's not to be missed. Well, I am super excited about your domestic noir book, Gail. Little Secrets by Gail Schimmel is in all bookstores right now, and I found it unputdownable. The characters are so nuanced and interesting, and the situation they find themselves in had me at the edge of my seat. I was on the edge of my seat writing it. I didn't always know where those characters were going to take me. Especially Daisy, I'm sure. Especially her. Well, I love the way you ended this book. Your many fans will not be disappointed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name is Fiona Snickers, and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Hi, Gail. Hi, Fiona. It's so exciting to be here doing our first episode. How's your week been? I'm very aware that there's this whole world of school runs and... uh, schedules and children going on out there without me in it. You know, I'm an empty nester these days, and I'm just wondering, is it all carrying on without me? Is it as hectic as I remember? It's carrying on without you, and then some, I feel like. This this year has started off at such a race, and I'm not on top of it, that is for sure. I'm kind of a little bit jealous of you and your empty nest at the moment, and I keep trying to remind myself that I'm going to look back in these days and wish that I was racing around between schools and sports events. <laughs> but an emptiness is sounding pretty good to me. Yeah, there's the odd moment of fond nostalgia, but mostly it's just sort of shuddering with horror and very happy that I'm not sitting in that traffic. And the traffic at the moment with the load shedding, I cannot explain to you how it is shortening my life doing these school runs. Okay, so the school run angle is hectic. But what has your writing week been like? Good, bad? Fiona, it's an interesting one. I've got a whole lot of structural edits coming up. And because of that, I've just finished a book and I'm not starting something new at the moment. And I thought that I was going to be loving giving myself a break. And I'm missing it so badly. What about you? How's your week been? It's been pretty good. I'm trying something new these days. I've realized that my biggest enemy is social media in terms of concentrating and keeping my focus when I'm trying to write. So I'm trying this new thing of getting up really early in the morning before anyone else is awake, not looking at my phone, like not getting sucked into the news cycle, the update cycle, and just sitting down with some coffee and starting to write. You don't even pick up your phone when you wake up or do you allow yourself a quick look and then go to the coffee? I switch off my alarm. I make sure that no child sitting in the Western Cape urgently wants my attention, but I don't open any emails. I don't open Facebook. I don't look at any notifications from my news sites. I go straight through, make the coffee and start writing and try and get a sort of solid two hours done before the days even got going. And then I find I'm feeling really good about myself. 
super smug, and um, I can then handle the interruptions of the day. I'm very impressed. Uh, you're going to have to keep me updated on this. And I'm, I'm a little bit, I feel a bit like an addict because I'm thinking, I don't know if I could not check Twitter first thing in the morning. Of course, I've got to check first thing in the morning, but I, I'm really impressed. I, I look forward to hearing how that goes for you. Yeah, Twitter, oh, that's a bad one. It really is. It's such a time suck. It's such an attention suck. It's my biggest enemy at the moment, just all, all the social media working together to take my attention away from writing. A hundred percent. And I find often when I'm mid-write, I suddenly think I urgently need to check my phone and I don't. So I, I think what you're doing, I think it might be the actual, the secret of writing. Well, we'll see how it goes. I'll, I'll keep you updated. I even find these days that social media is getting in the way of whatever I'm watching or listening to or reading, you know, I'm, I'm reading a chapter, I'm going great guns, and suddenly I feel this terrible urge to check what's going on on Instagram. Am I the only one? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, often when I do it, when I suddenly, and as you say, you enter the chapter and then suddenly Instagram's urgent and we wonder why our children aren't reading. Yeah. You know, we grew up reading without the distraction, so we've already got the habit. But for these kids who've grown up with this quick satisfaction of social media and, and the dopamine hit of it, how are we expecting them to sit down and read a book from cover to cover without being distracted by social media when we can't even manage it? I, th I think about it a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. And as writers, I, I find we need to refill that creative well. And social media isn't really doing it. It's not giving you that kind of uh, water of the gods that you need to keep writing. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever got an idea from a Facebook post or a tweet. Possibly I'm wrong. Possibly people can can correct us on that, but I certainly have never got a, a story seed from social media. Other sources, yes, but social media, no. Yeah, so we, we do need to focus on consuming that content, um, and that is something we're going to talk about. So just in terms of this week, what have you been watching, listening to, or reading that's caught your attention, either in a good or a bad way? So I have an obsession at the moment with the power of older women and how exciting it is to be an older woman. And so I'm listening rather obsessively to a podcast called The Shift with Sam Baker. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the interviewees are writers. So for me, it ticks two boxes. It's, it's the post 40 woman and the power of the post 40 woman and the experience of that woman and also the writer, the experience of those writers. I'm obsessed with this podcast. It is giving me so much energy for my writing and for my living. And honestly, I recommend it to everybody. Okay, well, that sounds great. I think I'm going to check it out. I think you tweeted about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just a few times. <laughs> so one can get some good ideas off Twitter now and then maybe. And what about you? What have you been consuming? Well, um, a few days ago, I watched um, the sort of latest romantic comedy on Netflix, which is Your Place or Mine, uh, featuring Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher, and it, it was fun. It just went down really well. I enjoyed it. Um, and then a few days after that, I was kind of, I was, I had that rom-com feeling, mm. you know, I just mm. wanted more. 
Um, so I went onto Netflix and I started looking for the old romantic comedies, mm. you know, from the 90s and the 2000s and looking for one that maybe I missed. And I came across one called Two Weeks Notice with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant. And I thought, well, those are the two classic romantic comedy. Can't go wrong. Can't yeah, go exactly. wrong. Exactly. What could possibly go wrong here? Um, it was made in 2002 and it was so deep down in my soul disappointing and I've been thinking about it ever since and trying to think you know what was wrong with it or is it something that's wrong with me because I strongly suspect that in 2002 which was not all that long ago mm. I if I'd seen it when it came out I would have quite enjoyed it. Fiona, 2002 was 21 years ago. Okay. I think by but anybody's that's, that's count, not it's true, quite is it? long ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it, that is maybe not just yesterday, but um, uh, yeah, so I, I know I would have enjoyed it back then. And what has happened in between that I can no longer enjoy this thing? And it, it came down to feeling that this movie would not be made anymore. It was just, it had too many themes that one would label problematic. And I like to think of myself as somebody who can look back at a product, a cultural product, and put it in its context and enjoy it for what it was. Mm, mm. But this was, oh my gosh, it was so dumb. Hugh, <laughs> Hugh Grant is He's a kind of millionaire businessman type, but he's not even an alpha male because he's under the thumb of his older brother who really runs the company. And all he does is sort of float around all day looking pretty and being silly. And he needs, you know, what one remembers her as his assistant because she's always tripping around after him with a notepad <laughs> and helping him choose ties and telling him which shirt goes with which suit and so on. But actually, she's his legal advisor. She's a Harvard-educated oh, legal advisor. Um, that's Sandra Bullock. And, you know, of course, they, they spend so much time together that they end up falling in love. But at the end of it, I was asking myself, why? He's not redeemed in any way. All he does is he's about to break a promise that he's made to her. And at the end, he ends up keeping the promise. And somehow the bar is so low that she's like, okay, let's get married straight away. Well, in defense of the story, it is Hugh Grant. He's 20 years ago. He's pretty. I looked at him. I enjoyed looking at him. He was lovely to look at, but he's a complete bimbo. I don't know <laughs> where this man's self-respect was, even to say yes to this project, but it probably made him a lot of money. So, I mean, what, what is it? Has, has our kind of wokeness of 2023 spoiled cultural products for us? That's a big question. That's a big question. And that's a question I want us to be asking our guests a great deal. We've got a very exciting guest today. Her name is Angela Makolwa and she is the author of, um, several published works, including Red Ink. 30th Candle, The Black Widow Society, The Blessed Girl, and most recently, Critical But Stable. And um, it was recently announced that she has a new book coming out this year, which is the sequel to Red Ink. Um, we're hoping to ask her more about that. So we are very excited to have Angela McCallwa in the studio with us today. Hi, Angela, and welcome. What has your writing week been like? Phew, 
Fiona, um, I'm glad you're asking this week because I'd had about five months of just dead air. I'd started this manuscript, um, I think around early last, mid to early to mid last year. It was growing great. And then I had a research trip scheduled to Swaziland because a lot of what happens in the book is set in Swaziland. Mm-hmm. And I had a family emergency, a family crisis that just put the brakes on everything. Right. Um, and shifted my focus completely. Um, you know, because it, 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 it involved one of my family members' health. And of course, that kind of thing just completely throws you. Mm. So I had to cancel the trip, then got out of my writing mode completely. And even to the point that I feared that I wouldn't regain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just trying to remember what the car, okay, the catalyst actually for me to get back on the horse um, was a meeting with the publishers, which will get you back on the horse. Especially <laughs> if you spent the advance that they gave you months ago. <laughs> and we've always spent the advance that they gave us. <laughs> yes, so that's, uh, but I'm glad because, I mean, it's a book that, it's a, I'm re, so I, so, so a couple of things are, interesting about this manuscript is that one uh, is a sequel mm-hmm. um, to my debut novel mm-hmm. Red Ink um, which was a crime thriller as you may know and and I had sworn that I would never ever write a sequel mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the reasons also why it's so challenging because I just thought how do you reprise a character um, that you left what 10 years ago mm-hmm. 15 right. years ago mm-hmm. um and, 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 you know, fortunately for me, uh, Red Ink did have kind of this open-ended ending and readers have been asking me for a sequel for the longest time. Um, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd always said like, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, but I think a couple of things also kind of spurred that on. Um, I'm writing, I'm currently working on the screenplay for Red Ink with television writers because it's been co- commissioned for Television, interesting. Ooh. Yeah, so I think that also helps, you know, because we're reprising all the characters all the time, every mm-hmm. day. Because mm-hmm. also, television writing has has an intensity that I don't find in novel writing because novel writing is such a solitary uh, exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas television is group work, it's collaboration, mm-hmm. um, and so it's interesting to also have all of these people all of these minds kind of um trying to 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 write plot and characterization and i think it's just a great way to kind of um reject that muscle for me that creative muscle mm-hmm. um and and i guess it just makes it easier because i'm talking about these characters all the time so now um it's easy for them to come back on the page so it's been a very interesting time so how does that work? Are you sitting in the writer's room for Red Ink or do they produce content and then run it past you? I'm sitting in the writer's room because I did something different with Red Ink um, that I hadn't done with my other novels. So they'd all been um, um, commissioned or, or the, the rights had been sold to different producers. But then I was getting frustrated because they would expire. People would buy mm. the rights or they would hold the rights and then they'd expire mm. and nothing mm. happens. Mm. And so I just decided I'm going to do this one myself. So I've got the rights to Red Ink. I, I got them back from the publishers mm-hmm. and then I I put together the treatment, mm-hmm. sourced money to get a TV writer on board to help me with the treatment, pitched it, 
mm-hmm. to a a streaming service. They liked it. They bought it. And that's and so I'm a so in other, in other words, I'm both a producer and a writer, co-writer on the series with other writers. That is incredibly exciting and very inspiring. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you've made me have so many questions about it that I need to get my head together. Can <laughs> I? Let's have some coffee. <laughs> I, I want to take a step back mm-hmm. and I want to ta- ask you to take us back to how you became a writer in the first place. And I know that, like me, you've got quite a hectic day job. So so yeah. how did the day job happen and how did the writing become part of that? Um, look, the writing, we were talking about how people find um, their path, alien life. You were talking about your son. Um, and I think with me... It, it struck me at around 14 or 15 years old that like I want to write, I want to be a writer, I want to be a novelist. And it was, it seemed far-fetched at the time because I was a black child living in a township. I didn't know anyone who was a writer. I didn't even know that that's a job. But of course I read a lot of books. So I figured obviously, obviously there's people doing this. Um, and so the closest thing that I could do that resembled what I wanted to do from the very beginning was journalism. Mm-hmm. So then I studied journalism and I, I, I worked as a journalist for, for not a, not for a very long time, to be honest, for about two years, because I've also had a very strong entrepreneurial edge in me. Like this entrepreneurial fire has always been burning in my belly. So mm. I knew that also I'd probably segue into that at some point. So anyway, as a journalist, I came across, I was, I, I used to like reporting on crime. And I'd been following Moses Sitwale's story, who was a serial killer at the time, mm-hmm. who was terrorizing young black women again in the township. So people like me. And so, you know, I just had this thing that I needed to get to the bottom of why this person was doing this. Um, and so when he was finally um, uh, incarcerated and then sentenced, I wrote to him and then I wanted to go to visit him at, 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 at CMAX, at Pretoria Maximum security prison to find out why like because i didn't understand that level of evil Mm. like in a person i didn't understand how a person could be that way um and for some reason i wanted to find out (laughs) for myself (laughs) (laughs) and so i i wrote to moses uh and then he didn't respond to my letter for four years um fortunately i'd kept i'd kept the same phone number mobile number and just out of the blue, I left journalism, I started my PR practice, and out of the blue, I get a call from this person who claims to be Moses Sitole, and who says I wrote a letter to him, which I couldn't remember by this time, because I think it was a good six or seven years later. Goodness. Um, and obviously, I left the, 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 the field of reporting, mm. um, and so I thought, but I, I would still freelance because I've always loved writing. So then I labored over it and I decided, no, let me go see this person because I'm still interested in the story. So I went to see him and he lied and said to me that I had written to him uh, wanting to write his life story and that my appeal sounded so genuine and that he thought I got it. I, 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 I was willing um, to not judge him and, and, and write his story, um, you know, in a, it, justifying it, being a serial yeah, killer. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's me, right? So anyway, so I thought about that as well and I decided to write, to write the book. Uh, but obviously I had my own agenda. Um, and clearly, I mean, obviously I didn't want to 
find to 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 justify why he did what he did but i did want to find out why he did what he did yeah and so that's how i wrote so initially red ink was supposed to be a biography on a serial killer mm-hmm. um but being the psychopath that he is he started calling me a lot writing me love letters um and also just the telling of his narrative it was clear that this person is not going to really reveal who he who he is um and so I dropped that project because it wasn't going anywhere. But then I met a publisher uh, to whom I shared this whole story. And he thought, that is brilliant. Why don't, so you've got all this material. You're not going to do anything with it. I'm like, there's nothing I can do about it. I've got his case files. I've got everything. But he's a liar, you know. And he said to me, well, why don't you fictionalize it? So that's what I did. Stunning. <laughs> Stunning. Um, and then your next book was a pretty dramatic change of genre, wasn't it? That was 30th Candle, um, which one could call women's fiction. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was kind of marketed as chiclet, mm-hmm. which maybe is a term that isn't much in use no, anymore. exactly so. <laughs> um, was it a genre you were reading and consuming yes, at the time? Actually, yes, of course. I was in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you actually asked me about a rom-com, and I said, no. And I actually remember I did, I, did, I did read a lot of it and watch those movies that we all watched, um, because I guess that's the space I was in. I was young, looking for love. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was that, you know, the darkness of Red Ink, because I had to imagine the worst that could have happened in those encounters with Moses when I wrote the book. So I went to a very dark and frightening place. And I think I just needed something much lighter, something much more grounded in like mm-hmm. a young woman's, I don't know, reality and just lighter. Um, so yeah, so that's why it was easier. It was, it was, a, it was just the most opportune time for me to write. Um, that kind of literature and I, I enjoyed the experience and I found that a lot of women, young women um, found themselves they couldn't identify with a lot of the characters so that resonance also and that connection with your readership um, I think it shifts something in you because I think at that time I still hadn't figured out if this is a full this is a full time thing or a flesh in the pan kind of thing um, but, but, but having that connectedness and talking to people and seeing that your stories shift something in people or move something in people Mm. um it just kind of spurs you on i don't know if you guys have experienced the same thing if you feel the same way but yeah it really does something there's something about turning 30 isn't there Mm. it's quite a big birthday i mean Mm. we talk about 40 and 50 and 60 but there's something about that 3-0 that that big birthday that really makes especially young women i think reevaluate their lives Gail, when you were 30, were you sort of totally content with the path your life was on? So it's so interesting that you've highlighted this because the first book I wrote, which is not the first book of mine that was published, but the first book I wrote, the file name was 30 Dash Maddie. Maddie was the main character. Yeah. And 30 was my aim that I wanted to have written a book by the time wow. I was 30. Mm-hmm. Because that to me was some sort of cutoff. If you, if you haven't done it by 30, are you going to do it? Now, of course, I know that that is absolute rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got your whole life ahead of you at 30. Yeah. But it's, it's really, it's, 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 it's an I, interesting. I think it's, societal. it's both internal and an external kind of pressure. Cause I remember that I was going through that as well. It just felt like, okay, now I'm no longer in my 20s, so I can't get away with, you know, kind of being like 
a mini adult. It just felt like this is the cornerstone of what adult, like real, mm. the arrival of adulthood looks like. So I think that's why we put so much pressure. But the strange thing is, I don't think men feel the same way towards that, that milestone. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, interact with a lot of men who felt like, yeah, no, 30 is, you know, like if I don't make it by 30, that's it. So it's a very female thing. And I don't know why we do that to ourselves. And I especially don't know why when we just have so much power as older women, but I'm now veering into my new obsession of the power of older women. Fiona, how old were you when your first book was published? I think I was 38. So I didn't make that 30 mm. cut off by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> <Awesome. laughs> and it, it, it hasn't affected me, but there was this idea, I remember at the time, that you had to be married by 30. Yes, at that you time had to have your first child true. by 30. True. You had to I be remember. well launched on your career by 30. That's it. You had to have your life together, your mm. style, your mm. Everything you had to know who you were and what path you and were I think on. Those women's magazines that we were mm. filling our brains with also had mm. a big part to play. Mm. Mm. Emptying our brains yeah. with some would yes. say. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and our mothers' lives, maybe, because I think I think they came from a generation where who you were when you were thirty did define who you were going to be for the rest of your life. Mm. Whereas for us, it's the the ability to reinvent ourselves is endless. You're now a screenwriter. Um, and you just a few days over 30. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Thank you for that. Let's put that away. Don't edit that one out. <laughs> Angela, can I ask you about your writing day? Mm-hmm. How many words? Where do you write? When do you write? What targets do you set yourself? Let us see into your writing Ooh, world. I, that, that is the worst thing in the world. So I remember I did this writing course where we were um, given kind of an idea of what the prescribed number of words uh, need to be in a manuscript, and it was 85,000. And as I said, that this current manuscript has been one of the most challenging for me. And so, so now that I have started again working on it, um, this week being my first big writing week. <laughs> How opportune to have this podcast now. So I've been telling myself, okay, at least, so I kept on looking at the word count, which is the worst thing you can do to yourself. Mm. And I never used to do that. So I keep looking at the word count and I write my guts out and then it's like, I've only done like 2,000 words. Like, no! How am I going to get to, you know? Okay, I'm interrupting. Yes. Only done 2,000 words. Well, no, no, this is not over a day. Gail, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> and, and sure. no, before we get excited, <laughs> before we get excited, no. And I'm thinking, no, let me not look at the word count. Let me look at the pages. So I'm like, I remember I was speaking to my friend, I think, uh, day before yesterday, because um, it was I, I was just in a good writing space, and I said to her, um, I'm gonna go find a quiet place in a hotel. This is, and she says. You've got expensive problems. <laughs> um, I said to her, at, at home, I can't write in the office. It's, it's, it's the office. People come and they ask me about, you know, whatever, clients and this and that and the other. So I found a hotel uh, near my house. I went to sit uh, in the hotel lobby, had my coffee, and then um, started and put on my headphones, played some mood music to shut off everything around me, and I started writing. And I said to my friend, I'm going to put in 20, I said 25 pages today. 
That's a lot. I don't know what that is in words, and I'm obsessed with, with word words. count. So yeah, so I said 25 pages. <laughs> I think you're doing great. I think you're doing great. I'm going to go home and figure out how many pages that is in words. Um, but but I that that growing a manuscript, do you feel that as a huge pressure? Is that how you measure whether you've had a good day writing? If the manuscript's grown, or do you go? I only wrote a page, but my God, it was a good page. Um, that's what I was doing initially, like in the, in the beginning of my, of, of this manuscript. And I, I was judging myself a lot. I was editing. I was belaboring like each and every page and word had to be perfect. So then I decided to change my strategy and I thought, you know what? Let's just get it in there. And then of course, editing is every writer's best friend. So I could go back and I could clean up. So that's the approach that I'm trying to take now that let me put down the thoughts because then when I overthink and I want to perfect it, then I get stuck in this mm-hmm. zone mm-hmm. called writer's block, which is a zone I do not like to mm-hmm. be in. Um, so I'm trying this approach. Uh, and also, I think another thing that I picked up from the TV people, the TV writers, is that they plan and plot a lot. Mm-hmm. They plan. There's a lot of meetings where you're just planning an episode you know uh, and so I'm trying to do that more which I wasn't doing I was like a freehand kind of writer um, that would clean up after so I'm I'm taking time to sit down and plot it out and uh, do my character development and do character more detailed character bios than I used to um, which is quite helpful so once you do that I find that even the freestyling of your writing you do it with more confidence because you've got a clearer idea of where this whole thing is going. Right. So yeah. so working on the script is bleeding over into working on a novel and you kind of adopting some of the techniques of screenwriting to give you energy for going through your novel. That's exactly it. And it's been incredible. And there's also just this interesting writing technique that they have um, in screenwriting. Uh, it's called Save the Cat. It's about a 15-step uh, process. Um, that literally makes up, uh, maps out your hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And I'm also finding that incredibly helpful. Um, yeah, in writing this book. So. Is that something we can Google and? Yes, yes, please Google it. You will love it. Your, your life will change <laughs> forever. Your writing life, that is. Okay, Angela, mm. you can go Save home now. You've yeah, given us what we need. Goodwill to the writing nation. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that. There yeah, are writers really who good. take Save the Cat and use that as their blueprint. It's brilliant, yeah. I, I just haven't gone into it myself, but yeah. No, you must. Very try. interesting. Yeah, just Google it and then you will, uh, yeah, you love it. Especially, I think, for the, the crime genre because of the fact that you have to have, you have to hook you have to work so hard in hooking the reader. Mm. You know, your cliffhangers, um, your red herrings and all of that kind of stuff. Like uh, if you structure it within the, the Save the Cat structure, I find that it just becomes much stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you've talked about how you're plotting it out more. Before this, were you a pencil or were you a plotter? Did you, did you, do you write just off the seat of your pants or do you? I, I, I plotted it out in my head, especially mm-hmm. when I'm driving. It's so strange the places that that mm. just kick in that creative muscle. So when I'm driving, I think about it and I even talk to myself. Oh gosh, I talk to myself, and then I have these conversations between the characters, and, I, and then this is what's going to happen. This, and then when I do that, immediately when I get home after checking out the kids and da da da, 
I can I normally cannot pull myself from that laptop because I want to capture it all down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it's been happening throughout the years, which is I don't know how I survived on that, but I did uh, because now that I've found this other technique, I find I'm I'm thrilled at how much easier it is. So interesting. So your third novel in 2013 was The Black Widow Society. Mm. And I think when we first met, it was at a Jenny Chris Williams event where you were talking about, I think, 30th Candle. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were there to sort of push 30th Candle. I was there to push probably one of my Trinity books. And we had them for sale. And you also started talking about this new manuscript that you had an idea for yeah. um, about women, fairly high society women who got together with the view to murdering their own husbands. I love that book. And everybody (laughs) was in it until each husband was gone. You couldn't sort of, your husband's gone and now you can opt out of it. Yeah. And I remember we were all so gripped by that idea. And when Jenny opened questions to the audience, everyone was like, Okay, but where's that manuscript? Can I buy it? Is it here? Where is it? I want it, you know. Um, And then come 2013, some years later, it did appear and I believe did extremely well and was a very gripping manuscript. And that was a a return to the crime genre for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I think... It's, it's interesting being a novelist in South Africa, uh, because you get boxed in less than when you're an international writer. Mm. I feel like now, Gail, you will know this with, uh, when you're, when you're exposed to, um, international markets, there's just a much more pressing need for you to kind of identify yourself as a specific genre writer. Yes. Mm. Define uh, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 in South Africa, I, fi- I found that even with my publishers, we never had that long discussion like, no, but, you know, aren't you supposed to be a crime writer? We want more crime from you or we want more, um, you know, women's fiction from you. So, um, firstly, just that, that gratitude to be able to, you know, switch heads as and when you feel like it. Yes. Um, um, and, and yeah, and, and I read more crime fiction. I think I've, I'm more of a crime buff than I am anything else uh, when it comes to genre writing. Although, strangely, these days I'm writing, I'm reading more uh, Mm -hmm. non-fiction. And I think also when I'm writing crime, I try not to read too much crime because I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to feel like an idea because you have a lot of ideas that feel original in your head. But then once you watch an American crime movie or series mm-hmm. you're thinking oh my gosh there's my idea they're going to think i stole this from dharma <laughs> you know um so i try to separate myself from the genre that i'm writing so that i can just feel that freshness and originality in my ideas i find a great comfort in knowing that actually there are no original ideas yeah I, it gives that me great true. comfort yeah. it gives me yeah, and and because I'm doing some intense genre writing in my Katie Gale partnership with Kate Sidley, where you write to a particular genre, and Fiona, you know this feeling, and and mm. Fiona, I have to say, is queen of the swapping genres and being able to do it completely capably. Um, but then you find you aren't expected to have original ideas, and there's something quite freeing about that. You expected to stick to the tropes. You expected to hit all the. The story Mm. beats and uh, produce something that's original but also predictable and familiar and comfortable for your reader. 
And uh, yeah, it, it feels it's a move away from that trying to be is original. It, is, it a, is it an issue of, you know, if you say to me that I'm going to be write, reading a crime thriller as a reader, you must fulfill the expectation of what comes with that, right? I mm-hmm. guess that's that's part of it. And that's why there's kind of a subtle formulaicness mm-hmm. in certain genres, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Completely. I think that is, I think it's part of your promise to the reader. Mm. Um, it, but it is an interesting one because we also all want to be original. Don't we just? <laughs> <laughs> Don't we just? <laughs> So speaking of original, and this was a very original manuscript, in 2017, you came out with The Blessed Girl. That's how you say it, right? Blessed. The Blessed Girl. Uh, Yeah, people always ask me, is it The Blessed Girl or The Blessed Girl? But yeah, it's The Blessed Girl. (laughs) Yes, I've heard you saying The Blessed Girl, um, which did very well in South Africa and also sold into the UK market. I know Gail's got a question about that. what was your inspiration for that? Because I know you've never been a blessed girl. Oh, sadly. <laughs> Do you know that, Fiona? Do you know that? I will die with that secret. <laughs> um, so the inspiration was, it was social commentary. It was just a phenomenon that was a bit strange to me because, you know, we've always had um the sugar baby and sugar daddy kind of uh Phenomenon in society with older men, younger women. But the strange thing uh, to me, and I think social media had a lot to do with it, is that it was almost becoming kind of a subculture, especially amongst like young black girls. And I just, what, what, what was curious to me was that initially, you know, it was the kind of thing that you could view as a poverty trap problem. Like mm-hmm. in other words, these girls see these men as a way to, you know, escape um, their circumstances, circumstances of lack. But what was interesting and intriguing to me was that a lot of the girls who, um, you know, labeled themselves and they happily did, uh, you know, label themselves as blessees at the time. Mm-hmm. That was the term. Now it's slay queen or sugar babies and, and, and so on. Um, was that these girls were educated. Some of them came from middle class homes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, my my big my biggest question about that was like why mm-hmm. <laughs> why would you want so I I didn't understand it and and like the Moses story when I don't understand something I want to go out there and find out why like especially if it's something that's very disconnected to my own mm-hmm. values and my own way of viewing the world mm-hmm. and not necessarily approaching it with a lens of judgment but. A lens of like the, the journalist in me, I suppose, like just wanting to know and understand. Um, and so I interacted with a lot of these young girls and, uh, these young women. Um, and, and, and I tried to also speak to the blessers. Of course, they shut, they were completely shut off. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, but I, I did gain a lot of insights around why a lot of these ladies do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then, uh, and those insights became a lot of the, anecdotal like a lot of the anecdotal stuff actually made it into my manuscript yeah your character Bontle she's not an object of pity in the book is she she's she's got agency Mm -hmm. she's in charge of her own destiny the these are self-conscious choices that she's making did you create her as a character like that deliberately yes um she's kind of an anti-hero and uh 
the reason she's like that is because she embodies a lot of like what I found in my like in the people that I, I interviewed. I hate the word subjects in the people that I interviewed. Um, because I needed to show that this is not a, this is not like a path, like this is not a way, it's not a plea for help. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of these women, it's an empowered statement to say, well, if you're going to waste a hundred thousand rand on me, mm-hmm. I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it. And you're going to have to deal with the consequences. If I leave you for somebody else, that's not my business. I'm not the married one. You are. I'm mm-hmm. not the older one. You are. So you're going to have to deal with it. But for me, this is access to a lifestyle that I, you know, aspire to that I feel I deserve. Mm-hmm. And so I'll do what it takes to live it. And then you, you, you as the men are going to have to deal with the consequences of that. If it destroys your marriage, it destroys your marriage, not my marriage kind of thing. So. And what, yeah. what, when I read Blessed Girl, I thought this was a South African phenomena. And I've since learned that it's actually an international it's phenomena. The young woman all over the world seeing the, in these transactional relationships, relationships with older men yeah and also strangely that don't always involve sex yes sometimes it's not about sex uh but it is about i mean also the, the other very strange aspect of it that i cannot wrap my head around is that i mean because of social media of the influence of social media sometimes it's just about a guy who feels that the ultimate ticket to being seen as having made it or as having arrived is having one of these women, you know, in his arm, like being spotted somewhere or being seen on social media with so-and-so who is supposed to be like the most expensive woman, the most, you know, she's mm. a prize. Mm. And so status symbol. it's a status symbol. And, and it's such a strange thing. <laughs> and they're willing to spend a lot of money, whatever that woman wants, they're willing to spend it as long as um, they can have that association. And have people know and that that's what it's about. That that's who they, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. My question about Blessed Girl is a very righty one. You had to change the ending for the international audience. Now, without giving any spoilers, yeah. can you talk to us about what that was like? Um, very strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was strange, but I think it was a little bit expected because, first of all, of all my books, I didn't expect the Blessed Girl to be the one that you know, cracks the international market. I, like you, I thought it was a very South African story. Um, and I was happy to write it for my mm-hmm. South African audience. And so when, uh, Bloomsbury approached my age or, or when Bloomsbury asked my agent for the rights, the international rights, uh, it was a huge surprise. But then I thought, you know, if I read, I mean, obviously a lot of us, uh, are exposed to European literature, American literature. I knew, I just had an inkling that a lot of the things that happened with especially towards the end would probably just not resonate um with that audience you know um because it is it i did like the fact that they saw it as an empowerment even though in a twisted way an empowerment story for a young woman in terms of identity like that Mm. she had that agency um she wasn't a victim but at the same time they had so no but i think that is the thing that resonated the most so which is why they we're not happy with my South African ending because my South African ending is kind of more on the cautionary tale type of trail, mm-hmm. um, which I know also even some of my South African readers were not happy with and some were, but anyway, it is what it is. So, so with the, the international, the overseas market, it was an issue of, you know, not, a, not can we romanticize how you have fate, but a more, can we have a gentler, 
mm-hmm. ending mm-hmm. Um, um, to it, to her adventures and, and whatnot. And so we went back and forth about it a lot because I said to them, I don't think that, you know, she's going to sail off into the sunset with Prince Charming because for me, that just doesn't ring true. Mm. So, so I can't write that kind of en- er, ending because it doesn't ring true for the character for me, the way that I perceive this character and the way that I understand this character. And they say, and then we had to have a middle ground, which is, which is ultimately what happened. And which is your favorite, the South African ending or the, the international ending? <laughs> oh, for someone who hasn't read the book, which one would you prefer mm. for them to read? I think I have days. I think I have days when I like the, 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 the UK, uh, version the most. Um, and I think where that comes from is when, especially when I think about Buntle or I talk about her, uh, cause people talk about her as if it's somebody that they know personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just feels like, no, this is probably how things would have ended for her. But I, but for me, what was important about the South African ending was that, uh, I just felt that there was a danger of glamorizing this kind of lifestyle. Mm. And I felt like there's real consequences in the real world that come with this lifestyle. And I wanted, I wanted it to be like a, like a punch in the face. Like this is, it's all good and well, um, to live like this. But you know, sometimes, most of the time, it just doesn't end well. Mm. Maybe we want our daughters to be reading the South African version, <laughs> but then, we can read the I international. Think, I think, yeah, once the daughters 10.30, they can go overseas and read the international <laughs> version because they'll be mature enough to take it. <laughs> Speaking of joking, um, Blessed Girl was a novel where you really started flexing your comic ability. Oh, what fun. <laughs> and it, it was in fact shortlisted for the Comedy Women in Print Award yeah. in the UK. Is, yeah. And I believe came very close to winning really and Marion Keyes loved it mm-hmm. and said that she loved it publicly. Um, was that fun for you? Because oh, in your next fun. manuscript, I feel like you, you carried on that kind A of comic of tone. Yeah, no, I loved it. Um, I mean, strangely enough, when I wrote Red Ink, I did try to sneak in um um some bursts of humor some comic relief but i felt but people missed it i think people were so focused on the grittiness of um you know what was happening there that they completely lost it and i was disappointed because i kept on i remember when i was doing the the interview uh the the tours and all of that kind of stuff i expected somebody to say oh but i did love you know that there were Mm. This best of humor mm-hmm. in all this crime and everybody missed it. So clearly my comic muscle was <laughs> not as strong as I thought it was at the time. Um, but I think that is a South African trait. And I think I like that, that we deal with even the, the harshest, um, circumstances and the harshest, um, you know, uh, trails in life with humor and, 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 and it was important for me, or I think it's just part of the way that I also, um, go through life and uh, so it was important for me to to have that come across in my writing um and yeah i remember writing the blessed girl i would be cackling on my own at 2 in the morning <laughs> not believing the things that come out of this character's mouth um so yes no i would like to i mean it's obviously not as easy when you're writing like hardcore crime like i'm writing at the moment uh to have um those those opportunities for the lighter like for the slice of life life moments but i really did enjoy the humor i did enjoy writing um you know yeah humor 
Okay. And then in 2020, we got critical but stable for you where the, the, the sort of comic thread continued. Um, and it, it's a book dealing with three families who belong to the same sh- social club mm-hmm. uh, and who are very much keeping up with the Joneses mm-hmm. or keeping up with the Kumalos, mm-hmm. as I think you've said, mm-hmm. um, competing with each other uh, in terms of their wealth and status symbols and brand names. Um, and behind those glitzy exteriors, there are marriages and relationships that aren't going all that well. Mm-hmm. So what was your inspiration for that novel? And and uh, in terms of social commentary, what were you trying to achieve with that? Mm, again, I feel that Critical But Stable is a very South African story uh, based in very South African phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, so black South Africans have shifted, have more black South Africans have shifted into the middle class and the upper middle class. Um, and it's interesting for me how class is becoming a big kind of issue now. Mm. You know, um, the politics of class are, are becoming almost bigger than the politics of race, although race will always be an issue in mm. South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was, I, I wanted to explore that. Um, and I wanted to explore what it means to be extremely wealthy and black in this current environment, mm. in this current South Africa. Uh, because I think people view that, you know, because obviously it's still a much smaller uh, uh, um, uh, 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 percentage of our population. So people tend to either over glamorize it or view it as, you know, oh, these people, it must be ill-gotten gains, which is also a thing that mm, I wanted very to Very common debunk. narrative. Yeah, yes. it's, it's a narrative I wanted to debunk. Um, and then also that, again, people tend to over-glamorize it or or um, vilify it. So I wanted to actually go into those homes, go into these people's lifestyles and uh, go through their trials, their tribulations, uh, whether they seem superficial, um, you know, to somebody who's outside looking in. Uh, but the thing is, they are couples, they are like any other couple. Mm-hmm. And they have usually the same issues that a couple in uh, Clip Town, in Alex, like in mm-hmm. terms of how the men, or, or rather the, the dynamic between mm-hmm. um, the, married, the two married people, whether it's a man and a man or a man and a woman, mm-hmm. um, that those issues, relationship issues are common throughout different social strata. Um, and I wanted to reflect on that and, and, and show the pettiness of how we can be as human beings, whether you've got a million in your account or you've got f- five rands in your account. Um, but also it was about when, with regards to, so, so for instance, one of the couples have, um, a domestic worker who, who, who sometimes sneaks in her daughter because, um, of xenophobic violence, um, in the township where they live. Um, so it was also to bring in the marrying of those two worlds, mm-hmm. which is also a South African reality that it's hard to separate a sentence from an Alex because they, live chick by jaw with each other Mm -hmm. and that is the same even in that micro environment of a Mm -hmm. home that the people in big house (laughs) may have lots of money but right next to them in the maids quarters is somebody who's going through the things that uh that that ordinary south africans go through that they're not very far removed from that and so the the people that are that have made it cannot remove themselves from those realities either 
It's so interesting, this explanation, because when we were preparing for today, I went back to see what I had said about Critical But Stable when I read it initially, and I called you the Jilly Cooper of the northern suburbs of Johannesburg. And listening to you talk about it, I actually think I, I was particularly on on point because yeah. Julie Cooper explores class and mm. and the reality of the stories behind people who appear to uh, outsiders to be upper class etc but she does it in England yeah. um so i would say to any listener who loved Julie Cooper Go and read critical, critical but stable, stable because <laughs> because really it 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 there's a similarity in the aims and and in your expert explanation and I'm so relieved that I that I made a comment that was so on point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another trend that I've noticed in your writing is that by this point you were starting to write more openly about sex. Um, and haven't I always? <laughs> I I think critical but stable broke new ground. Yeah. Um, Me too. And and just as with red ink, you were one of the first, if not the first, black writer of the crime genre in South Africa. Um, and I think that writing openly about sex is also a thing that you're breaking new ground with. Uh, do you feel that it's a when it comes to to black characters and black writers, was it ever a taboo? Is it still a taboo? Are you consciously breaking a taboo here? Sure. Yeah, no. Uh, if you see how I often have to edit and sometimes even think of deleting some of my sex scenes, uh, especially I remember with The Blessed Girl, uh <laughs> <laughs> There's an incident where, you know, uh, uh, Buntle goes to see a surgeon, uh, you know, after a sexual encounter with a very well endowed, I don't know if I'm allowed to say any of this, very well endowed, <laughs> please uh, say whatever uh, you lover. Like. Um, and she thinks, you know, that something has happened in her nether regions that must be fixed because that cannot be normal. <laughs> and I remember I wrote this scene and it, like, I think I had wine. It was late. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded perfectly perfect um, until I had to read it the next morning and think of my mother reading it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, I hope. I, and then, you know, in, in the end, you, you leave these scenes because you, you laugh and you're thinking, okay, it's either they're going to hate it, they will be scandalized, or they're going to laugh about it. So then you, of course, leave it to the editor at the publishers to make the call. And I thought, you know what? If they say, no, this is a bit too much, you can take it. I'll, I'll, I'll live. I'll see. I think I'll live because I, I don't know how I'm going to read this except like at a book festival <laughs> <laughs> and I actually did and I actually did read that I normally avoid it so I went to Swaziland on a writer's tour and you know so- Swaziland is a fairly conservative society mm. and um, I remember there were there was a majority male um, audience uh, at this <laughs> reading Oh my goodness. And, and I remember I was tired. I was irritable. A lot of things had gone wrong with the organization of the thing. And I was asked to read from the blessed girl. And for some reason, I went for that. <laughs> <laughs> and you should have seen the look on the audience's faces. They were not impressed. They were not impressed at all. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I bet you you sold hundreds of books from reading it. 
they hated it but loved it. So <laughs> stop it, I like it kind of situation. <laughs> they went back for more. <laughs> they went back for more after looking like they were so embarrassed by what came out of this woman's mouth. So yeah. <laughs> and time. your mother? How did your mother no, react? My mother loves it. My mother loves my books. My gosh, she's my first reader. She loves it. She and she's never commented on the sex. <laughs> <laughs> I guess she leaves it to gossip with her friends saying, sure, I can't believe I raised that monster. <laughs> <laughs> that sex maniac. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Angela, you raised such an interesting point about whether we as writers must self-censor um, at the point of writing or whether we must leave it to the editor to do the sort of cleaning up for us. Do you ever feel the urge while you're writing like, oh, no, I can't say that. Oh, I'll get in trouble if I say that. Oh, you know, the climate's not right for me to be putting this on paper. And do you kind of edit yourself in advance or do you just put it all on the page and leave it to your publishers and editors to sort out? I think I do enjoy pushing boundaries. Um in, in, in the themes that I explore, especially in a country like South Africa, which just kind of does need to be nudged every now and then. Um, so I remember with the, with the xenophobia, uh, like sub theme in, in critical but stable. I mean, that's a big, that's a big issue mm-hmm. here in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just felt like that, the, I just felt like there's a lot of, um, issues that we don't explore, especially as, um, the middle class, especially the black middle class, um, with regards to that xenophobia, the, the xenophobia that is more inflamed, especially, especially in, in less privileged areas, because there is that sense amongst a lot of underprivileged people that, you know, opportunities are being stripped from them and, and it's, they, they feel ignored. They feel that the government is not listening to their mm-hmm. plight. But as the middle class, of course, we have a, um, an, a, a liberal attitude. Let me call it that towards that because we, we, it's a lot about, you know, this is oppression. This is Afrophobia. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. there is a need to explore it holistically and not just brush it off as, um, this is a self-hatred of, of, of us as Africans hating other Africans. I think there's a more layered and a more nuanced mm-hmm. discussion within this, um, this issue mm-hmm. than what we are willing, um, to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Middle class people very are very issue. sort of sheltered from the Ex- problem of yes. xenophobia. Yes. Um, whereas if you sort of living on the ground, maybe in a township, you have a completely different it's a completely view of it. Different view of it. So I wanted to explore both sides of that coin, you know. Um, and it was a difficult thing because I thought, Ooh, I'm going to, I might get mm-hmm. into trouble with this. Um, but I thought it was important, um, to, to air, to air that out. I and you, Gail, are you, sort of censoring yourself before you get onto the page or or overthinking things, second-guessing yourself? Definitely more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely think something has happened. I don't know if it's because of social media making conversations so immediate and so extreme. Um, I don't know if it's because we are all more woke than we were. Um, I don't know if it's because people get demonized very easily. Um, but I definitely am checking myself more. 
um, and and very very aware as I write about South Africa that I'm a white middle class woman, mm-hmm. and my reality is not everybody's reality. Um, and sometimes you've got to say to yourself, just just leave that leave that behind. Just mm-hmm. write the story, let the voice be heard, and afterwards, maybe if I've gone too far, I can check myself then. And you? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, when I started out writing, I had no fear. I happily created a first person Mm -hmm. character, a young black woman living in South Africa. I inhabited her world, told her story over four books. And I I remember talking about it um, at panels and festivals and so on um, and being quite happy to defend my choice Mm -hmm. and feeling confident in that choice. And these days, I, I don't think I would do it again. Mm. I, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I'm not the best person to be telling that story and that I should maybe just leave that alone for now and tell different stories that I'm maybe more in inverted commas qualified to tell. Um, not saying that I'm only going to populate my narratives with people who look and sound exactly like me, mm. but maybe not do a sort of first person, perspective. um, perspective. Mm of a life that I have never lived and will never truly be able to understand. It's, mm. yeah. I, de- I definitely, I think, I think if you wrote Trinity now, you yeah, would be demonized. Would be demonized yeah. So, uh, probably, uh, probably. It's, it's so interesting how times change. Yeah. It is interesting. And I, I mean, I found that also with the UK, like my current books that I'm writing for the UK market, I find that um, there's much more censoring that there's something called a cultural editor. Sensitivity editor. Sensitivity editor. And I didn't realize, um, you know, so, so it's critical but stable that has gone through this process and the 30th candle. Um, and I remember thinking, like, when I first encountered this term of a sensitivity editor, it was when I was editing a uh, critical by stable for for the for the US and UK market and I thought okay so if there's so many issues like there were issues about how I represent um, homosexual characters mm-hmm. um, so I talk about asexuality in mm-hmm. critical but stable um, there was also an issue about how I represent that mm-hmm. um, and it's things that of course, as a writer, as somebody who has lived like in a woke environment, mm. you know, um, you think you have tackled with sensitivity. Mm. Um, and, and of course, the barometer for sensitivity is very subjective. Like I could mm. think that I've covered my bases. Mm. But like you say, you, you, you go in there with the best of intentions because you're thinking, you know, maybe I, you, I was even thinking, repre- I think I've always thought representation matters. Mm. I've almost had homosexual characters in almost mm. all my books mm-hmm. uh, because of that. And it was kind of a, it wasn't even a, an overly intentional thing. Mm. It was just kind of like, of course, we, we all are different and we live amongst different people. So we need to see all these people on the page or as many people in their various hues and, you know, colors and whatever as possible in, on the page that represent what the world really looks like. So you, I don't think you do that. You go in there when you're thinking about representation, you go in there intending to be an mm. asshole. You go in there intending to be mm. representative, mm. but, but of course, 
somebody somewhere will very likely be offended. Yeah. I also think that in South Africa, we talk about it. In South Africa, we're not scared to talk about the elephant in the room. We're not scared to tackle the xenophobia. We're not scared to tackle the homophobia and we don't skirt around it and I've, I had one very I think you and I have spoken yes, about it a very bad experience I with someone calling you yes. what in the world is this <laughs> I had a very bad experience with someone trying to edit out the race of one of my characters um, and and it made me furious but it also and and I won that battle and I think might have lost an editor their job um, but I I do think in South Africa we're less afraid of saying it Um, and that the sensitivity editors in other countries are so sensitive and so scared that they don't even want to talk about the thing that we we want to bring out there. I think think there's a big difference. Uh, there was an interesting development um, in among South African writers a few years ago, um, particularly among black South African writers, mm-hmm. where there was a kind of split mm-hmm. between those writers who were prepared to engage in traditionally white spaces mm-hmm. like um, book festivals and certain panels mm-hmm. that were run and owned by white people. Mm-hmm. And then there were those who said, no, we're not engaging in those spaces mm-hmm. anymore. We're going to create our own venues for discussion. And I know you have friends in both camps mm-hmm. and um, you yourself have continued to sort of engage in those white spaces. Is it something that you wrestled with? Was it a difficult decision? Oh, it was a difficult decision um, because where that sentiment came from is something that obviously as a black person, I completely um, had experienced and felt, you know. Um, so let me just uh, put it into context. So coming into the literary scene, I think it was around, what, 20, 2007? Yes, and I don't know if I had any expectations. I didn't know what this world looks like. I just thought you write a book, then maybe you conduct a few interviews to promote it, and then um, you go back to your life. I didn't know that there's festivals, literary festivals to be attended, talks to be given, panel discussions to be had. Podcasts. A podcast <laughs> to be done. <laughs> um, and so... My first experience of a literary festival was actually quite a pleasant one and very representative because it was the time of the writer mm-hmm. uh, in Durban. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's always feel, been different. Yes, it's always been different. So I thought that's the texture um, and, and feel of, of how these things go. And I thought, oh, great. This is this is scary, daunting, but wonderful. And so I and then, of course, I started going to then I went to a German festival, literary festival. And of course, it's Germany. I can't expect, you know, I'm, I think mm-hmm. I was like the only mm-hmm. black person in the room, but it's Germany. What what am I expecting? And it was a small town in Germany even at the time. <clears throat> then I came back to South Africa, started doing the literary circuits in Cape Town. And that's where the culture shock came in straight, you know, because I think it was the issue of how even audience members received mm-hmm. you. It wasn't just about, um, you know, just the fact that you're probably like one of two black people in the room. It was the kind of questions that are posed at you, um, the kind of comments that are made, which were 
a lot of the time tone deaf mm. and condescending. Mm-hmm. And so you felt, I don't know, it just, you, oh, I would come out of those places, uh, feeling lost, feeling just kind of discombobulated. I didn't understand whether, you know, what I'm trying to say in my writing was understood, mm-hmm. but also I didn't, feel that I am seen the way that other, the white writers are seen. Like, I, it's, it's almost like, oh, you amazing little black girl. You <laughs> managed to put <laughs> 60,000 words together into <laughs> a page, like into a book, you know? <laughs> um, so it was that sense of uh, disconnection, I think, that brought that whole kind of revolution of black writers just not wanting to be in spaces where they did not feel seen and Mm -hmm. did not feel understood. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the logical person, I mean, I'm a businesswoman, Mm -hmm. the logical person in me understood that um, I'm writing for different audiences. This is South Africa. And I need to talk about my books. I need to open um, new avenues mm. for my work so that my work uh, is, 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 is read. And also I don't, I didn't feel that it was very helpful if we are feeling like um, white audiences don't understand this world that we're writing about for us to completely alienate them. Because I think part of the, South African experiment is um, cutting down those barriers Mm -hmm. of like understanding those cultural barriers and how you do that of course is that you know Fiona should be able to read my book as much as as Mm -hmm. much as I'm a black female writer as she would read Gail's book Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know and and be able to have a conversation about Mm -hmm. it and explore everything that I'm talking about without the first thing on her mind being this is Black Angela Mm -hmm. writing about Black experiences. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of what we do with literature. That's part of what books are supposed to do is to open up these new worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was my, that was ultimately the reason why I kind of straddled the the, the two worlds. Yeah, no, I I get that. And I, I also get those who Mm. refuse to engage in those white spaces. I understand why they did it. I have sympathy for both points of view. Um, so as, and and even as, even as a white person in those white spaces, those spaces are too white, you know, they are some of them just very, very, very white Mm. in a particular way of old fashioned whiteness. And even as a white writer, you misunderstood. The funniest um, incident, it didn't involve me, but it involved Zugisa Wana, who wrote The Madams, which is Mm -hmm. a book about, um, Mm. um, you know, black Mm. madams, I think mostly. And she went to um, a bookstore, I think, um, like somewhere in the northern suburbs. And the first question um, that she was asked uh, by a member of the audience was, Oh, were you a maid then? <laughs> I wish I'd been a fly on that wall just to see her response. Oh, you know her response was fiery. <laughs> yeah, so there you have it. Um, 
Angela, as writers, we have to refill our creative well somehow. Mm -hmm. And for many of us, that is consuming narratives, consuming content. And Gail and I have already talked about what we've been watching this week, what we've been reading, what we've been listening to. Um, and I've been wondering, how have you been refilling your well this week? What what narratives have you been consuming that either worked or didn't work for you? Um, okay, so from a television point of view, um, I've been watching you as much as I said, I try to avoid uh, tropes that are similar <laughs> to what I'm writing about. Um, I'm, I'm addicted to that show. I don't know if you know oh, what really? it is about it's the serial season killer. four now, isn't it's it? It's season four, yeah. um, which I found not as engaging, uh, to be fair, as, as the other seasons for some reason. It's very class focused and all of that. And, and of course, the main character uh, kind of shifts um, personality a little bit. Um, so, so, but that's that's always interesting to me because also it's an adaptation. So, for obvious reasons, that's why it's also interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm reading. Um, as I said, I try to avoid. Uh, you know, the genre that I'm writing at a particular time. So I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. Um, I'm reading the most fascinating book. It's about Zola Mawabe. We grew up, um, you know, we heard this name a lot when we were younger, um, as kids growing up in the township, uh, because this guy was called the Black Robin Hood, uh, because he would, it, he was presented as stealing from the rich, uh, to give to the poor. So when I saw that, uh, Don Lebati and Nicholas Kerkinis have written a book about him, I had to grab it. And it's really, really fascinating because, you know, during apartheid, you don't imagine a black guy. My, uh, managing to infiltrate his way into South African banking systems mm-hmm. and uh, finding a way to, you know, uh, uh, I know I, it's, we can't glorify fraud, but it's bloody interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so he would siphon money off of these banks. He managed to get a job for his girlfriend to work for one of the major banks. And it's just, it's an incredible, crazy, uh, fascinating journey. So I'm reading this and I'm also reading, and I think this is interesting. I'm reading a book called... Um, the body uh, for its inhabitants, like for us, its inhabitants. It's called. It's by a guy called Bill Bryanson. Oh, and yes. why I'm enjoying this book is because it's so amazing as a writer, especially as a crime writer, the kind of detailed information you mm-hmm. need to have or understanding of human physiology because mm-hmm. you're going to be describing, you know, um, jugular veins like somebody's mm-hmm. going to throttle somebody and then what happens to what what is the body's reaction to that so this book um is written in a very anecdotal fashion but it's very scientific so mm-hmm. i actually recommend it for any writer because it explains every imaginable thing about the human body and so it comes and of course a lot of that or some of that will come in handy in mm-hmm. your writing <laughs> so yeah That's awesome. Well, this has been great, Angela. Uh, We want everyone to check out your books. I think they're all available in electronic format. Yes, they are. And some of them are still in print and in the bookstores. Indeed, they are. Mm -hmm. So I would like everyone to look out for Critical But Stable and also for the new book, the sequel to Red Ink. It's called The Read Dance Stalker. Oh, it has And when can we expect it? The Read Dance Stalker. Is coming to stock you in your local neighborhood probably sometime this year, later this year. Yeah. Exciting. Fantastic. <laughs> I want everyone to look out for that and buy it. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank this has been a blast and have a good week. You too. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> 
Well, that was absolutely fascinating. I loved every moment of it. Um, Gail, I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did. I loved it. I always forget how funny Angela is and how just being around her fills one with inspiration. Absolutely. So what, what has inspired you in particular about that episode? So for me, 100%, I'm going back to the office and Googling Save the Cat. I've never heard of it. It sounds amazing. And I'm needing something new in my approach to writing. Maybe I'll find it there. I'm very excited about that. And the other thing, I'm going to read The Body by Bill Bryson. I love Bill Bryson. His, his, the complete history of the world or whatever it was called changed a lot of my views about things. So I'm excited about the body. Um, so that for those for me are the big things that I wrote down while Angela was speaking. What about you? Well, I think I need to learn to be a bit braver as a writer. You know, the way Angela was talking, it was clear that she is less timorous than I am and possibly than you are. Uh, maybe it's our white middle class thing, but mm. she's not censoring herself at that moment of putting words on the page. She's putting them there and maybe rethinking it the next day or leaving it to the editor to sort out. And I think I just need to be a little bit braver, a little bit less scared of being cancelled. Um <laughs> Uh, obviously one does not want to be tone deaf or obnoxious and that's not what I'm saying, but just perhaps break more boundaries and be a little bit braver on the page. Another thing I took from her was how to get over a writing slump. You know, she was talking about how she'd had a family emergency mm. and that a family member's health was involved. And that's something you can't ignore. You can't mm. just brush that off and how it had led her into a writing slump. And I was very interested to hear that the thing that brought her out of that slump was launching into screenwriting, mm. which is a very different discipline, and that that had somehow reignited her creativity with regard to her no normal novel writing as well, and that she was taking some of the techniques she learned um, in the screenwriting process mm. and applying them to the novel writing process. So I'm hoping that... In fact, I think it will. This, this podcasting journey that we are on will inspire me and refill the well and and give me new inspiration. But, yeah, those are the things that I've taken from her. And, Fiona, what do you have to give to our audience? What is your piece of advice for aspirant writers this week? I think if you are struggling, maybe try coming at it from a different point of view. Uh, maybe start thinking like a screenwriter, think like a television writer, think like a poet if that's what works for you. Think like an advertising copywriter. Just change your perspective slightly and see if that helps you with the writing. What about you, Gail? The first piece of advice I always give aspirant writers is keep your aims realistic. Mm -hmm. So don't try and write 2,000 words a day because you will fail. Try and write 200 words a day and then you'll succeed. So that for me, that, that's been one of the most important things that has kept me writing, that I have realistic goals and then I meet them and then I'm inspired to keep on writing. And that's what we want to do, keep on writing. Absolutely. And we want to hear from you, the listeners. Check out our show notes for our social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Have you tried the Save the Cat method? Um, have you tried any of the other popular writing methods out there? Um, how did they work for you? What do you do to get out of a slump? Contact us. We'd love to hear from you.
Thanks, everyone, and have a good week. Goodbye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.